Well, we've been talking about how when Jesus showed up on the pages of history, he stepped into a cultural climate where a lot of people were staying away from faith or walking away from faith. And basically, the sentiment in the days that Jesus walked upon the earth uh, was something like this. When it came to religion, people thought that their life would be better off without it. And that was true of some Jewish people, and that was also true of some pagan people. Uh, When they thought about God, they thought about faith, they thought about religion, a lot of them just said, no, thank you. I think my life would be better off without it. And that was the world that Jesus stepped into. But not only that, but Jesus, when we think about it, Jesus stepped into a world where a lot of people had uncertainty about the future. Uh, People weren't able to know what was right around the corner. The Jewish people were not able to predict what the Romans would do or not do. And they were always hanging by a thread by the Roman powers that were in Rome. And so the Jewish people in Palestine, they really didn't know how to think of the future because their future had been upended so many times over the generations. But it was a place of oppression. It was a place of discrimination, classism, sexism. You know, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, The pagans were afraid of the next natural disaster because they were all always afraid that the gods were upset with them and so they never really knew where they stood with God and so the gods could possibly do anything that they wanted to do whenever and so people just they walked around with such uncertainty about the future and a lot of fear a lot of panic a lot of anxiety a lot of anger uh, a lot of upheaval socially and even religiously and it was into that culture that Jesus stepped in and Jesus announced something uh, that was just not better but Jesus announced something that was new and better It was new because it was not something old, and it was better because it is better than what was old. And so Jesus showed up, and Jesus pointed everyone to their heavenly Father, to their Creator. And he says, when you think about God, I want you to think about a God who cares more about rule breakers than he does the rules. I want you to think more about God in the sense that he cares more about lawbreakers than he does the law that the lawbreakers actually broke. He said, when you think about God, I want you to think about the fact that he loves you, he knows you, he's invited you into a relationship regardless of who you are or what you have done. And that was new and that was better because every other religion could only offer you a code of conduct to try to get you good with God. But only Jesus showed up to say, hey, I have come to do what you can't do in order to get good with God. It's not about what you can do for God that's going to make you good with God. It's about what God is going to do through me for you that's going to make you able to be okay and to be good with God. And so we started this whole series off by talking about how Jesus took his disciples into a place called the upper room. And there he redefined Passover for them and for all of us. From that point on, for 1,400 years, the Jewish people had celebrated Passover. That is, that every year they would do this feast or this supper, and it was a symbolic supper. They would take, you know, wine, and they would take bread. And as part of that supper, they would look back, and they would think about 1,400 years before, in the days of Jesus, when God rescued the nation of Israel through Moses from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus, he said something profound and something that could have been offensive to many and most Jewish people. He said... From now on, when you do this, you're not going to think about what God did through Moses for your nation when he rescued you from slavery. From now on, you're going to think about what God has done for you through me when I'm about to rescue you from your sin. And Jesus would tell us that he's going to go to the cross, he's going to die for our sins, and then after he's buried, he's going to be resurrected the third day. And because of that, and because of the significance of his death and his resurrection, Jesus brought about what he called, in his own words, a new 
covenant. And so if you haven't been here, I just want to give this to you because we're moving on. We don't have time to tease it out. Watch the last couple of weeks. But the old covenant, Jesus came to start a new one. The old covenant was a conditional covenant with Israel based on law. But the new covenant that Jesus came to institute was an unconditional covenant with the world based on grace. And so for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about how because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, Jesus set us free from the Old Testament law, that Jesus set us free from any obligation or responsibility to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Now, that was a really big deal because that was the Ten Commandments, and on top of that, there was a whole bunch of other commandments. And so for the past couple of weeks, the point has been we are no longer under law, but we are now under grace. And just not grace, but a no-strings-attached grace, a no-loophole grace, a free-of-charge to everyone who doesn't deserve it kind of grace, an extravagant, matchless, endless kind of grace that Jesus talked about, that his followers wrote about in the New Testament, this grace of God, which makes the new covenant so much better than the old covenant. Now, to think about this grace, because th this is what we've been talking about week in and week out, and, and I'm becoming of the conviction you just can't talk enough about grace, because most of us, we have an innate resistance to it, and sometimes we just flat out don't understand it. But grace is such a big part of the new covenant. It is what the new covenant is based on, this unconditional covenant with whosoever will based on grace. Uh, one of my favorite people to read after and uh, favorite people to listen to preach is a guy by the name of Chuck or Charles Swindoll. Uh, he goes by both. But he illustrates grace this way. He says, think of these three things. He says, think of vengeance, justice, and grace. And then he speaks to every parent or grandparent, and he says, think about this. Try to imagine this as horrible as it is. Imagine that your six-year-old child or your six-year-old grandchild was brutally murdered. He says, you have three options before you, vengeance, justice, or grace. Vengeance is that if you take things into your own hand and you wipe out the person that murdered your grandchild or your son or daughter. He says, that would be vengeance. Justice would be letting the police and the justice system come to their conclusion and enact justice that is fitting for the crime. He says, that would be justice, life in prison, death penalty, whatever it is based on the state that you're in. He said, that would be justice to hand them over to the authorities that be. He says, but grace would be going to the judge and knowing that the person is guilty and pleading for their pardon. And then once you procured their pardon, you invited them into your home and you began to treat them like family. And he says, as offensive as that is, as unthinkable as that is, he says, that is what God has done for us. That that is grace. It's illogical. It's not reasonable. It doesn't even seem like a good idea, but that's what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions. It's not what we have done, but it's what God has done for us. And because of that, we've said that grace makes people uncomfortable. It makes people angry. It gets people confused. Jesus offended people by grace. And let me tell you why Jesus offended people by grace. Because they looked at him allowing people like Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. And it offended them that Jesus would even be around someone like Matthew, the tax collector. The religious people were offended by it. You know what it was? It was the grace that Jesus had for Matthew. It wasn't what Matthew had done. It wasn't what Matthew was good at or what Matthew was bad at. But he invited Matthew to follow, and it offended people. People were offended because they never quite knew where Jesus stood on 
on some things. Was Jesus for it or was Jesus against it? Did he condemn it? Did he condone it? People were bothered by grace because at times it seemed unfair and people were getting away with bad behavior and, and it just made them scratch their hands. And lots of times they walked away after Jesus talked about grace or told a story about grace and they had more questions than they did answers. Because if you're lacking clarity on grace or after three weeks grace is still bothering you a little bit or you want something else to be said or you think there needs to be something closed in or something made a little bit more clear you need to understand that grace most always makes things messier not clearer it makes things messier not clearer laws make things clear lists make things clear boxes to check policies regulations rituals things to do on certain days things not to do on certain days that makes things clear grace however makes things messier rather than clearer and when you talk about grace whether it's jesus or whether it's us as a church or christians in the 21st century we run the risk of being misunderstood and misrepresented people will not always hear what we're saying and then people will hear what we're saying, and then they stand the chance of going and misrepresenting what we have said. Over and over again, I get told by people just like you, people in Somerset, people that attend our church, people will come up to me and say, Pastor, I was out somewhere this week, and someone came up to me, and this is what they said. They came up, and they pulled me aside, and they said, I've heard that your church lets anybody come. As though we should be embarrassed by that. As though we should apologize for that. As though there's something wrong with that. As though that's not the way that Jesus did it in the New Testament. As though that's not what the church is all about. And they would say, I've heard that so-and-so goes to your church. I've heard this. Is that true? And I just want you to know, once you understand grace, you will never be embarrassed by someone that says anything like that to you ever again. You'll matter of fact, look them in the face and say, I know, isn't that awesome? <laughs> and if you're really good friends with them, you could say, if it were that way at your church too, they may come there as well. But because it's not, they don't. Because there's something within us that we resist grace. And we think that there's something wrong when someone shows grace. They'll say, do you know who's serving at the creek? Do you know who's singing at the creek? Do you know who preaches at the creek? I like to tell them, hey, you think that's bad? Let me introduce you to the deacons. <laughs> you talk about some jokers. Let me, let me just tell you about those guys, right? And so it's just this grace thing that runs the risk of being misunderstood and misrepresented. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is about as conservative as the theologian as you can find, he is Calvinist, he's Reformed, he was pastor of the famous Westminster Chapel, and this is what he says about our message of grace. He says, if someone doesn't take our message of grace too far, we have yet to take it far enough. He says, if other people, when they listen to the message of Jesus' grace and the gospel grace that we're presented with in the New Testament, if they don't take it too far, we have not yet taken it far enough. There is always the risk of rebels taking it in the direction of I'm free to do whatever I want to do. But most of the time, there's the risk of religious people. The risk of religious people saying, I can't believe you would, and you don't believe right, and I can't believe it seems as though you're for everything and you're not against anything. 
But here, here's the point. We should never allow the risk that comes along with grace, whether it's to the rebels or to the religious group, to ever cause us to downplay or sell short the grace of God. Because if we misunderstand the grace of God or miscommunicate the grace of God, we will misinterpret and misapply both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so this brings us to where we left off last week because Paul, he, he was dealing with a bunch of Christians. Some of them were confused because they were trying to keep the old covenant, the old laws of Moses in order to get God to approve of them and to bless them and to love them and to accept them more. And so Paul, he writes this letter called the letter to the Galatians, and he equates the law as being a type of bondage. That we were in slavery to the law, a law that we could never keep. However, a law that was profitable in the sense that it revealed to us our rebel hearts. It revealed to us that we were sinners by nature against God. But when Paul spoke of the law, he says, you Christians, you Jesus followers, you're free. Why would you want to go back and get under that burden of trying to keep the law, the Ten Commandments, the hundreds of other commandments that went along with it? He says, there's this thing called grace. And he equated grace with freedom, but not a freedom to do whatever you want to do with whoever you want to do it with. And so where we left off last week, Paul writes to this group of Christians and he says, it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. doesn't matter whether you're trying to keep the law of Moses or not, because here's the only thing that counts. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through, and talk to me, love. love. The only thing, and again, what about all the Old Testament? Paul knew about the Old Testament. He knew about all the laws of Moses. But he said the only thing that mattered was love expressing itself. And that is the expression of our faith. That is the greatest expression of our faith. And so Paul, he was saying basically quit trying to get God to love you. Because God already loves you. You and God are okay. Now go love somebody else. Go love like you've been loved. Go show grace like you've received grace. Go forgive like you've been forgiven. That's Paul's point. You and God are okay, not because of what you've done, because of the commandments that you've kept, but because of what God did for you through Jesus. You and God are okay. You don't have to go to bed at night wondering if God is for you, wondering if God approves of you, wondering if God accepts you, wondering if God is still in your corner. Paul says you never have to worry about that ever again. You and God are okay. So now what you should do is take your faith and express it through love. And love your neighbor. Because if we took this seriously, we'd understand that the greatest expression of our faith isn't keeping law. It's showing love. Now, we were taught in church growing up that it was all about the keeping of the rules, keeping of the law, keeping of this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. That's what we thought faith was all about, many of us. We thought that that's how we expressed our faith. But Paul says, no, you got it wrong. That's thinking like a law keeper. That's thinking like, you know, old covenant type of thinking. But in the new covenant, you understand that the greatest expression of your faith is not keeping commandments and keeping law. The greatest expression of your faith is now showing love to one another. And so Paul goes on in this letter that we looked at last week. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. That is, that grace isn't a license to sin. Grace doesn't mean that you can cast off moral restraint. Freedom of any kind has limits. Shepherd Grayson, you are free to go outside. But here's how far you can go once you're outside. Shepherd Grayson, you can do whatever you want to do in your bedroom, except when I say whatever you want to do, I really mean that you can do everything within this boundary, right? 
I mean, freedom always has limits. We live in a free nation, a free society, but freedom has limits. You can't do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it. That's just a fact. That's a fact in our nation. That's a fact as it relates to our faith. He says you're free, but freedom has limits. This is not about amorality and being able to be lawless. He said this is not a license to sin. He says this is about freedom to love. You are set free to love your neighbor. You are set free to love everyone without exception, without exemption. No matter what they've done, you have the freedom to love them. No matter what they did, you have the freedom to forgive them. You have the freedom to accept them. And then he goes on, he says, for the entire law, the whole thing is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you love the Old Testament. Paul says, I love the Old Testament. But if you ever read it and interpret it and apply it in any other way that ends up being anything else other than love your neighbor as yourself, you have misread the point of the Old Testament, specifically the Old Covenant. Because what is in the Old Covenant, what is in the first five books of the Bible, what's in the Torah, what's in the prophets, what's in those books never gives any of us the right or the license to mistreat, to abuse, to unlove, to disrespect anyone, anyone. And for too many years in our country, there are a lot of Christians who love to use the law of God to beat up on the people that God loves so much that he died for them. That we typically love to use the laws of God as a weapon against people. That a lot of times we use the law of God to try to hurt people. We've all seen this happen in some shape, form, or fashion in different circles. And Paul says, you've misunderstood the whole thing because it all points to loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we said last week that love then does no harm. That's what it does. If you want to know what this type of love is, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And this was the clarity, hopefully, that we, we walked away with. This, this right here, loving others requires that we don't do anything that hurts ourselves or hurts anyone else and love requires us not to be mastered by anything mastered by sin mastered by any type of idol mastered by another person because now we understand that to love the way that jesus wants us to love we will never hurt ourselves because in hurting ourselves we will always hurt god when we hurt ourselves we will also hurt the people who love us most and care about us when we hurt anyone else, we also hurt the heart of God. That's what sin always does. Sin always hurts ourselves. Sin always hurts other people. And love understands that we can't be mastered by anything. Because if you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone. If you're mastered by alcohol, if you're mastered by prescription medication, if you're mastered by pornography, if you're mastered by anger, if you're mastered by pride, by arrogance, if you're mastered by anything, it will keep you from loving someone in your life the way that you're supposed to love them. And so Paul says, when you get this right, the benefit is it's like you're keeping the whole intent of the law. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you're also keeping the whole point behind the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments. But here's the thing. How many know that loving your neighbor like yourself is not easy? People who walk away hearing this New Covenant stuff and say, you're trying to make it too easy. Well, you're just not listening. You're, you're just not paying attention. Because Jesus didn't make things easier. In lots of ways, Jesus made it more demanding. 
In lots of ways, Jesus took what was nice, clean, and you know, just clean cut, nice bow on top of it, all these rules and regulations. And then Jesus just threw a whole bunch of grace in there. It was a little bit messy. And then we're left to think about, well, what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? And what does it look like in this situation? And what does it look like in that situation? That's not easy to do always. It's not easy always to do because you're you and I'm me. And to love you the way that I'm supposed to love you, at times you make it difficult. And for you to love me the way you're supposed to love me, sometimes I make it difficult. This is not easy. This is not about Jesus lowering the standard. This is Jesus saying you could never keep the law, but the good news is you don't have to because I kept it for you and I have forgiven you by grace. But now in this new covenant, I have given you a new commandment. And this new commandment is to go love each other the way that I've loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. But it's not easy to do, but I got good news. Grace just isn't forgiveness. Grace just isn't the slate being wiped clean. Grace just isn't that God loves you. He'll always love you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Let me tell you what grace also is. Grace isn't just freedom from the old law, and it is, but it is power to obey the new law. Jesus replaced the old law with a new law, specifically one commandment. The one law of the kingdom of God, to love your neighbor as yourself. The problem with the old law was this. It could never help us obey. It could not offer us any assistance in obeying. The only thing that the law did, would it would keep pointing back at us and say, you didn't get it right, you messed up, you know, you fell short, you just, no, 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 no. That's all the law could do. All the law could do is say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you broke the law, you broke the law, you broke the law. But the law of God could never help us to keep the rules which it brought forth. But Jesus, in grace, made it so much better than the new covenant because Jesus set us free from the old law, but he gave us a new law. And the new law is the law of love. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and prove it by the way that you love your neighbor as yourself. But he says, I know that this is impossible for you to do. I know that this is impossible for you to do by yourself. So in grace, part of grace is that God gives us the power God gives us the help that we need in order to do what he has commanded us to do. So in the same letter where Paul's been writing about all of this, this is what he says to them. He says, so I say to you, in light of this, in light of the fact that grace is also the power for you to obey what God has asked you to do. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. You've been set free from the law, but not freedom to indulge the flesh. This new law has replaced the old law. It is a law of love. And Paul says, so I say then, the answer to all of this is to walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, you won't gratify the desires of your flesh. To which verses like this used to bother me. Because I didn't understand them, and it just sounded like a churchy cop-out. It would almost be like you saying, well, tell us the answer. Tell us the answer then. I don't understand. Tell us the answer. And I would just say, okay, walk in the Spirit. Let's pray and go home. What does walk in the Spirit mean? But what is that all about, Paul? It makes a great t-shirt. It's a good coffee mug. But what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? And hear what Paul would say. Paul says, I want to remind you that sin is no longer your master. You have been set free from the power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. You should walk in the Spirit. That is to say that Jesus has given you himself. He has given you his spirit. And now his spirit lives and resides within you. 
And because the Spirit of God resides in you, you now have a brand new potential, a brand new power to do what you could never do by yourself before. If you try to do this thing about loving your neighbor as yourself all in your own power, Paul says you're going to be like... You're going to fall flat on your face. You're going to stay frustrated. You're going to be irritated. He says, but if you walk in the Spirit, if you keep step with the Spirit, if you don't get ahead of the Spirit and you don't far too, you know, fall too far behind the Spirit, but if you walk in the Spirit and you listen to those promptings and, and you listen to those whispers sometimes about let it go, don't say that, don't raise your voice, say you're sorry. He says, walk in the Spirit. And when you walk in the Spirit, You'll no longer give yourself over to the desires of your flesh. And in a minute, he'll tell us more about what that means. He says, for, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do whatever you want. And here, here's what Paul says. There's a part of me that wants to do what Jesus wants me to do. And there's also always present with me another part of me that doesn't want to do what Jesus wants me to do. There is a part of me that when I am faced with temptation, because we're all tempted, we might as well be honest about it, we might as well be transparent about it, that when we are tempted and no matter what the temptation is, no matter what flavor of sin it may be, Paul says, there is a part of you that will want to do what you know is the right thing, and that is to love in such a way that you don't hurt yourself, you don't hurt anybody else. He said, but there'll be a part of you that wants to do it, even though you know it'll hurt you. And even though you know it will hurt someone else. He says, these two things are in conflict. Paul wrote about it in another letter in Romans chapter 7. And he says, I've discovered, and this is the Apostle Paul, everybody. This is the guy that almost wrote half of the New Testament. He said... I rededicate my life to do this, but I end up doing that. I rededicate my life that I'm never going to do that again, but I end up doing it anyway. Doesn't that make you feel a little bit better about yourself? That's Paul. Paul. And you're no Paul. And I'm no Paul. And I'm thinking, wow, if that was Paul, and if that's you, and that's me, that's just kind of what we all have in common. That's just us. That's, that's humanity. That's sin in us. That's what Paul called the flesh. He said there's always going to be that war. There's always going to be that tension. And grace comes along and says grace is not only the fact that you get forgiven when you fail, but grace is the power that enables you not to fail in the first place. It gives you the power to overcome sin. And so he goes on and he says, but... But if you are led by the Spirit, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And again, he's talking about the same thing. And he's saying, there's two ways for you to approach your relationship with God. There's two ways for us to approach our relationship with God. The first one is by law. You can approach your relationship by God, by, you know, to God by law. And he says, you know, if you're approaching God on the basis of law, it's all about keeping rules. It's all about boxes to check. It's all about rituals. It's all about regulations. It's all, you know, it's going to be the fact that you're carrying around all this guilt, all this shame, or if you're kind of good at keeping the law, you're going to carry around a whole bunch of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. He says, if you approach God on the basis of law, he says, you need to understand that type of relationship with God or trying to relate to God in that type of relationship only ends up with you being frustrated and irritated, or it only ends up with you being self-righteous and arrogant. It never ends well. 
Because you're either going to be so bad at breaking the laws, you're going to feel terrible about yourself, or you're going to be better than everybody else in keeping the laws, and you're going to feel better than everybody else. Neither one is a good thing. And so law is just this horrible thing. It's what we would call legalism. It's when we try to address our behavioral issues from the outside in. That was never God's plan. God attempted to change us not from the outside in, which is religion, but from the inside out through a relationship. Because legalism always grows. When you try to relate to God based on law, it always goes to extremism. And all of a sudden, churches will tell you how you're supposed to dress and how you can't dress and how long your hair has to be. And then all of a sudden, we begin to look at other people through those eyes. And we'll see somebody who dresses that way and we'll assume, hmm, I don't think they're that spiritual. I don't think they are. <laughs> no, no, I don't, no way. They don't even bring a Bible to church. They don't even, I bet they don't even own one. Can you believe that? I mean, we, and we begin to look at them, and they'll tell people, you can wear this much makeup, you can't, you can wear this, you can wear that jewelry, no, you got to wear a pant, you got to cover this, you can't lose this type of music, and all this. And, and that's where, relating to God on the basis of law, that's where it takes us every single time. That's where it took the Jewish people. God said, honor the Sabbath, but it went to the extreme for the religious people. You could ride a donkey on the Sabbath, but you could not carry a stick while you rode the donkey to make the donkey go faster because you would be putting a burden on the donkey's back. That's extremism. If you were a woman trying to honor the Sabbath, you couldn't look in the mirror on the Sabbath because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it. And that would be work. It always goes to the extreme. You can relate to God on the basis of law or you can relate to God on the basis of grace. And grace is all about relationship. It's all about my relationship with God and how that relationship with God informs my relationship with all the other people. This is about walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. This is about not going too far behind or getting too far ahead. This is understanding that my greatest freedom is when I surrender to God's ways. When I surrender to God's ways, I feel more free. I feel more invigorated. I feel more fulfilled. I feel more content. You know this is true. I already know this is true. The happiest days of your faith experience have been when you were most surrendered. And when you were most surrendered, that's when you felt the most free. And that's grace. Grace is the power to obey because we surrender to God. His ways are not our ways. His ways are better than our ways. He says, so walk in the Spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. When you walk in the Spirit, you're no longer under law because when you walk in the Spirit, here's what Paul says, and this is just, woo. When you walk in the Spirit, you don't need any laws. You don't need any laws. You don't need any rules when you walk in the Spirit because when you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to do things the way that God wants you to do them anyway. And so Paul goes on and he says, when you get this wrong, he says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness. He goes on, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting. That was not a list of things not to do. And you need to understand that. That is not a list of things that Paul says you shouldn't do those. 
Paul's point is, those things are already in you. And when you don't walk in the Spirit, and you give yourself over to you, that's what's going to happen. That's what you're going to see. That's just something that's already within you because of this sin thing, this flesh thing. This is not a list of things not to do. This is what I will do when I'm left to myself. And so when left to ourselves, we will love ourselves at the expense of our own self and at the expense of others. And that's what that whole list is all about. You, you, you take all those sins that Paul mentions and all those behaviors and all those issues that Paul mentions, and at the heart of every single one of them, somebody's getting hurt. Somebody's getting taken advantage of. And that's Paul's point. If you give yourself over to the flesh, you're going to unlove you and you're going to unlove someone else. But then he takes us to the place that he's been trying to get us the whole time in this portion of the letter. He says, but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's forbearance. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. And it is self-control. Now, again, this, this is important. This is not a to-do list. This is not a to-do list. Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus and the Spirit of God has been deposited in you, those things are already in you. So Paul says, you've got all these acts of the flesh and the potential to do those things already within you. He says, but there's this tension, this tug of war. Now that the Spirit of God has been deposited in you and Jesus lives within you, he says, those things are not things that you're supposed to make a list of and say da-da-da-da-da. He says, no, that is the overflow. That is the outflow of God within you living through you. And when we get these things right, you're going to love yourself the way that you're supposed to love yourself in a healthy way. But you're going to love other people the way that you're supposed to love other people as you love yourself. Because it is the outflow of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, and against such, there is no law. Nobody passes laws to legislate against those things. Because those things, everybody is for those things. You can't pass a rule to make people do those things. You can't pass legislation to make people do those things. Paul says, only the Spirit of God living inside of you can make those things happen. And so here's what Paul did. Paul says that those nine flavors of the fruit of the Spirit, that's what a Jesus follower looks like. When a Jesus follower walks in the Spirit. Because when we don't walk in the Spirit, we don't look that way. And Paul says, this is what it looks like when Jesus begins to live through us. And all of a sudden, he says, that's, that's what it means to be spiritual. Spiritual isn't about how much you pray. Can't hurt. It's not about how much you pray. It's not about how much you attend church. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus redefined spiritual as being about loving someone, not believing, knowing, or feeling something. That's, that's how spiritual is redefined in the new covenant. Being spiritual in the new covenant isn't about how much you know or how much of the right things you believe or what you feel. It's about how you love. And Jesus taught it and Paul taught it. He says, if you want to be spiritual, if you want to know what it really means to be spiritual, he said, it's all about loving someone. It's not about something you know. It's not about something you feel. He said, it's not that. It's about loving someone. And then he says, since... Since then, we live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. And this is a much better way to think about following Jesus than keeping a set of rules. He said this is about keeping in step with. This is about keeping in step with, not keeping a set of rules. 
And he says, that's how you need to start thinking about your relationship with Jesus. This is how you think about a relationship with Jesus under the new covenant. This is how you think about your relationship with Jesus under grace. You're following a person. What did Jesus invite you to do? To follow him. Not follow a system, not follow a list, but to follow a person. So the grace of God ultimately, the grace of God isn't only that Jesus gave his life for us. It's that he also gave his life to us. Jesus took his disciples into the upper room. And he took the bread and he took the wine. And he redefined Passover. And as he did, he said these things to his followers. A new commandment I give to you. A new law that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he would say this, that greater love has no one than this than a person who would lay down his life for his friends. And then he would say this, by this will everybody know that you are one of my disciples because you love one another. And then he said, I'm about to go away. But if I go away, it's going to be a good thing. Because until I go away, the helper cannot come. This Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to send my spirit. And my spirit is going to reside within you. God is going to move out of the temple, and he is going to move into you. You are now going to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God is going to dwell within you. And Jesus would say, I want you to think about it this way. I am the vine, and you are the branches. And when you, the branch, are connected to me, the vine, the life that is in the vine is going to be expressed through the fruit of the branch. And without me, you can bear no fruit. But when you're connected to me, and when you abide in me, and when you keep in step with me, and when you walk in my spirit, the inevitable reaction of that will be you're going to produce the fruit, the fruit of my character, the fruit of love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and temperance and faith. And against such, he says, there are no laws. And he said, but I'm going to send someone to help you do this. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And as often as you do this, you take this bread and you take this cup. He says, as often as you do this, I want you to remember what all it means. I just want you to think about a cross, but I want you to think about what that cross did. I just want you to think about dying and suffering and a resurrection. I want you to think about what the consequence of that was. I want you to think about your freedom, your freedom from a law that you could never keep. I want you to think about the fact that grace has now given you the power to obey a new commandment, to go love. And now it doesn't matter what is behind you or before you. What matters is who is within you. That's what matters. That's what matters most. That we have everything that we need to do whatever he's asked us to do. Because we have the spirit of God within us. Because who is within us is greater, always greater than the who or the what that may be around us. And that's true. That who is within us is always greater than the who or the what that is around us. And Jesus says, as often as you do this, you take this cup, you take this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And think about what that means. So in just a moment, some of our gentlemen are going to be serving you both the bread and the cup. 
And as you hold on to it, and we'll receive it together, both here in London and Somerset, we'll receive it together in the end. But I want you to hold on to the bread. I want you to hold on to the cup. And I want you to think about how you've been set free. I want you to think about grace. And I want you to think about how grace has now given you the spirit of God inside of you that helps you love the way that you're supposed to love. The way that Jesus said. The way that Jesus did. Because in doing that, that's the most important, the most holy thing you will ever do is to love someone as you love yourself. Father, as we get ready to receive the bread and the wine, God, we just want to pause and we want to think about what that means. That we have been set free from the power of sin. That sin is no longer our master. God, I pray that we'll pause and think about the fact that when we couldn't keep the law, you kept the law for us. And us lawbreakers could be treated as though we were law keepers when we weren't. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for freedom. Thank you for freedom that has limits. And God, may we surrender to you. May we walk in your spirit so that we don't give ourselves over to the lust of our flesh. And God, may we understand in the end that the greatest expression of our faith is in loving one another. And Jesus, again, you said, as often as we do this, remember all of this and what it means for us, both for now and in eternity. In Jesus' name.